on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Sure enough, we're sitting in a meadow and we're meditating and Jen's got this crystal grid and we're, the sun is going down and I look up and I, there, it was almost like, it was like, um, I had, I had a recurring dream over 10 years before we went to Shasta and it was basically uh, a dream of seeing nine masculine and nine feminine archetypes and each one was a rites of passage. So the, so I was in the center and I was seeing these nine beings and I was walking along and I was walking, I was getting the transmission of the energy of these beings. And then at Shasta, it's like these beans appeared again and i'm like oh god like and like and i i am I'm, I'm i'm kind of you know doing the rational thing of like you know the sun is playing tricks on the forest and and this is you know light and shadow and and then but they are defined beings as coming out of the forest and there was two childlike beings so it was like the archetype of the family the nucleus of the the you know a boy and a girl and a mother and a father and so i was getting this transmission in terms of what i would call a channeled experience What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Chris Fletcher, a counselor that specializes in working with youth and their families. He's also the co-author of the forthcoming book, The Nine Rings of Alignment, alongside his partner, Jen. I first encountered Chris many years ago while visiting their Oceanside Retreat Sanctuary, Half Moon Haven. Over the years, we crossed paths only a handful of times, though I was touched by his grounded presence and passionate dedication to his family. In our conversation today, we speak about his own troubled adolescence and how intergenerational trauma played out in his life. He shares candidly about the dissolution of his first marriage, the journey into fatherhood, and the birth of the Nine Rings body of work. And finally, he offers key insights into parenting his boys and maintaining intimacy and connection as an integrated father throughout their teenage years and beyond. Before we begin, a reminder to please consider becoming a Patreon supporter for this podcast. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive perks, including behind-the-scenes updates, bonus interviews, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter for more info. And now, enjoy my conversation with Chris Fletcher. Welcome, Chris Fletcher, to the show. Thank you, and great to be here. I'd love to begin all my interviews by asking the guests to share a little of where they are in this moment, geographically, spiritually, and in this particular moment, we're in your place. So it's actually a great <laughs> opportunity for me to hear from you, yeah, where you're at. Mm, yeah, thank you, Ian. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm here on this beautiful Sunshine Coast. I've lived here for about 21 years, raising my two boys and been here with my partner, Jen. And it's been, uh, we've been a combination of a place to have families, uh, come and stay for holidays and vacations, as well as, uh, we do a lot of retreats as well, uh, that support people. It basically, uh, in the foundation area of uh, holistic healing. So focused in that area primarily to, again, supporting families has uh, been a, a great uh, vision and intention of Half Moon Haven. Mm-hmm. And where are you at in this moment? 
I'm in a really great state. I'm, I'm in a state of slowing myself down, been building and growing uh, Half Moon Haven, been writing my first book called The Nine Rings of Alignment, and and just taking time to, to write now and get all the final pieces of it locked in and enjoying the land. And just uh, with the time that we're in right now with COVID, it's been nice just to be stationary at home and really uh, getting in the garden, doing gardening projects and being present with my partner and having you know close friends and family come and stay with us at this time so it's been really a a nice time of just slowing down integrating a lot of information and uh, and writing taking Mm -hmm. time to write beautiful i'm reflecting on my time here and and this actually visit is i believe the only the second time ever yeah the first was almost 10 years ago right yeah which was part of a um you know, I reflect on it now and it was such an audacious attempt mm. at something that uh, a good friend, Zamir, who's also been on this podcast, as well as many others from the Vancouver scene at the time, there was this call put out to assemble. It felt like a, almost like the Avengers or something, yeah. assemble a, yeah. a gathering of people that could engage with the times. Yeah. This was right around, I guess, 2012, right? Which was That's right. certainly a big moment for, you know, mystery and, and uncertainty about what would unfold. Yes. But it was just powerful to me that, you know, we came together and where it was chosen was here, this group of people to enact, to, yes. to start a ceremonial beginning of, you know, something. Yeah. Uh, and I believe under just the banner of emergence. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and so I wonder if, as you reflect even on that moment too. Yeah, yeah. What? How did you get involved with that whole crew, or like, you know, how was this place chosen? Right. I'm curious to know that story. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Yeah, well, Zamir and I had been friends. He had come out for a retreat, and that's how I met him. And I just really appreciated his uh, wisdom on community and bridging community and growing community. So he had asked. Uh, we we had just put up a yurt, and mm-hmm. it had only been up about a year. And I thought, well, what a great way to bring like-minded people together that had similar visions. It was all about living in community and really enjoying all the gifts that we could share in a society that wasn't based on a hierarchy. And I really, that was one of my big visions too and and also was a theme of the Nine Rings. So that gathering actually was one of the, the sort of the, the, the seed planting for myself to then dive into, we, you know, we went down to Shasta and we had an incredible journey down there and it was a a journey of me just discovering myself a bit more of what did I want to bring to the world? What was my gifts? You know, finding out my own self. So that emergence of just, you know, within me. So what I got from that was just the, the people, the sharing, the similar vision that we all had collectively was really an inspiration to launch me into the new things that mm-hmm. I, I brought when my private practice as well as Half Moon Haven. Mm. Wow. So, so we'll get into the story too behind Nine Rings and that body of work. And I just clarifying the timeline as well. You're saying the emergence time was in some ways a seed or a catalyst into totally. the, the visioning to come. Yes, totally. Yeah. Uh-huh. And after the emergence, uh, Zemir and a number of other of us did get together and we did uh, go for a, a project called the Ruby Lake Project. And it was a hundred acre area. Now, what happened was we kept that place for two years and we, we worked the land and did really well. We had gatherings and retreats. Uh, we didn't get to purchase the land. That was the only thing. It didn't, it just didn't work out with the, you know, the zoning and things like that. And I, I find a lot of communities who are wanting to do community living. Uh, one of the things, obstacles, has been the zoning issues and things like that because there's an archaic 
you know situation where things are just confined just for to build the taxes like to basically have a lot of places but then charge them and not have one place that people can live sustainably in in community so that was one thing that i discovered doing the ruby lake project was which was inspired by emergence mm -hmm. well you brought up i think what'll be one of the themes of our conversation which is I mean, community being, a, I think, one of them, but also how, you know, whatever is not healed within interpersonal relationships and oftentimes the, the challenges one finds living in family systems, which are dysfunctional, that how that shows up in, I mean, so many areas of our lives, including how we try to build community, how we try to be in relationship, mm -hmm. uh, how we connect with ourselves. I mean, just speaking to those men. And so I'd love to hear a bit more about your background, which I understand you spent many years in counseling or social work working with at-risk youth i believe and and yeah. yeah i'd love to hear what brought you into that whole realm like what was it in your own story right totally. that you felt called to be yeah, there Yeah, you bet yeah thank you uh you know what one thing that happened when i was young i came from a great family and i was felt so blessed to be you know having a, a loving mother and father and you know i had had three brothers and younger brothers i was the oldest and and then my parents got a divorce and that was really rocked me i was right at a time where you know 12 years old and in ontario and then then and my mom met met another man and uh moved out to BC. And that was quite hard for me. I, I, I think that's where I had developed my own abandonment stuff. Like I was, I left my friends, my home, my safety, what I thought was an amazing family. And, and then getting over that, I went through some trouble in, in, in high school. I, I almost became a little bit of a vigilante. I, I started getting into fights and had a misfit bunch of friends that I would protect. And, and that was my little community, right? And so my way of acting out my wound, my inner child wound of anger and abandonment was through anger and violence in a way as, uh, for, for about three years. I was almost killed in a, in a, in a, in a fight where a man, a uh, young young man pulled a knife on me and it was then when i realized i had to shift and and i, I it was like the moment in your life where you see the whole your whole life flash before you and you go what your potential was but you're going to die and i was like i don't want to die and so luckily i i survived that and it was that point where i decided to go into uh, working with families so i started out in group homes and working with at risk youth and working with gangs working with a specialized program where i learned to work with a lot of Great teachers and mentors, Gabor Mate, uh, Gordon Neufeld from the Family Systems, uh, Michael Mead, uh, Rites of Passage work, uh, different, different people who we brought in and we got specific training with, which was, uh, Marshall Rosenberg for the nonviolent communication. So some guys were on the cutting edge of their, their work. And then we were getting all this training. Our supervisor, uh, allowed us to take paid training, which was really great in those days to, to get paid days to, to train every single month. And that's where I sort of develop my foundation of learning of what actually could support a family in a healthy way. I understand you intersected at some point with the mythopoetic men's movement, you know, Robert Bly or Iron John. I'm curious if there's a story. Usually there's a story of how that book, you know, right. comes to a man. And I wonder for you. Well, yeah, interesting. I was, I think I was about 25 years old and I was in a time where I had just gotten out of my first relationship. I was in my first love, three years, first relationship. I was really down because I was like, you know, that first, uh, first, um, you know, heart, heartbreak that you have in your life. And most of us can remember that time where, you know, we fall in love the first time and we think, wow, this could be it, you know, and then all of a sudden something happens and then it's over. And so my mom gave me Iron John 
and it, so it came at sort of that time in my life where I was just low energy and, and just not, not having much direction. I, I, I was kind of looking at, do I get out of working at the group homes? Do I move on to, you know, is this not my calling? You know, maybe, maybe I need to change. And that book just inspired me to really, you know, especially with the masculine and the masculine wound, I found was very important understanding of that, like that if, if that wound in, in, in our masculine part of ourselves can get looked at without that suppression or, you know, what I call the armored heart where we, we guard ourselves and protect ourselves. Cause I noticed some patterns in that first relationship of why my responsibility of, of breaking up and, and reading that work. I also was reading this, um, James Redfield Celestine prophecy. And that was also inspirational to me to to really look at myself and my own journey and and then look at my own parts that caused that breakup and so that got me on a new path and then that's when I started getting more into family counseling and that was the the shift from being sort of the youth worker street worker then my rights of passage at that time was like then I you know I'm going now into count the counseling era to help I understand that the the focus only on the individual, so let's just say young youth, right, uh, and particularly young men, often if the focus is only on them and that there's a missing of this constellation, right, which is, I think, how that whole systems approach right. developed. And right. I'd be curious, you know, even for the listener, you know, to explore that just a little bit, like actually why is that so vital to see yeah. the interrelationships of the individual yep. yeah. instead of just alone? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, what, a lot of work um, that I do is uh, we call it the uh, family constellation work or family of origin work, which basically is going back and and letting that person tell their story and share their story. What what I find is often young men who are acting out or in unhealthy relationships or in that shadow part of addictions, there's always some something that hasn't been looked at or, or revealed. And so the family of origin work is is basically just allowing that person to tell their story of, of all their relations in their past and also research and go back from their father's father's father, going back, you know, really literally you know, seven generations, if you can, in a way to actually look to see where the dynamics are. And one personal story that I, 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 I discovered in my twenties, actually after, after, um, reading uh, Iron John was I went back and interviewed my father uh, my birth father and he shared a story of, of abandonment that when he lost my grandfather in uh, the World War II he had gone missing for a year and had to do the walk of death so my, my 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 dad had this huge abandonment piece that I wasn't aware of and then ended up ha- t- telling me about his midlife crisis and then getting addicted to alcohol as a way of coping and so that just just that share was so healing for me to actually that he revealed and I didn't know this information until you know I was 25 years old so so if I hadn't done that practice to actually go back and interview my father and see you know where were these gaps where were the, where did my abandonment get connected to what was that in my father that was reflected in me so that was quite helpful as a way and I think any man that can do that type of work that can connect the dots to some history that's such a beautiful healing practice because it allows uh, the person to see sometimes where those wounds are coming because often they're unconscious they're a part of us that we don't see and they often just come out in relationships in an angry way or a frustrated way and and we don't know how to manage it because we're not really aware of where it's coming from where the source is so that family constellation was was you know instrumental in supporting myself and then i now bring that to others in in the work that i do with with men and families that's beautiful there's a line i I think in iron john too where he says something like you know where where the wound is is your greatest gift 
something yeah. like that. Yeah, and yeah how, totally. I and, agree. <laughs> and I see that connection too with this intergenerational, uh, the wake of, of intergenerational trauma, let's say, or their absences and yeah. how that rolls on until there's usually some willingness to turn and to face, totally. you know, to transmute or to alchemize. Yep. And I hear that in the story that you're sharing with your father. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, we often, there's this tendency that our wound is something bad or it's separate from us. And part of the Nine Rings teachings is also, you know, integrating the shadow and the light that we are not separate from that. And as soon as we actually look and go into that fear, that part, that dark part that we, you know, identify ourselves with, that we may have judgment or shame about. And the other thing I discovered too for men, uh, a lot of it's to do with shame, this unresolved shame that can be spoken to so they may have done something in their past or maybe something happened to them uh, in their past it could be even adult or child that when they're a child and it basically it, it sticks with them and that that inhibits their their whatever their, their relationship with their children it inhibits their relationship with their partner with their other family members so the nine rings was also a, a way to bring the the shadow and light and help men integrate that in a, in a healthy way without having to be shamed or or you know put down about it mm. Well, I'd love to touch on your own uh, journey into fatherhood because I understand, again, you have two boys, mm-hmm. 23 and 21. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what was the calling or the, you know, the moment when you knew, yes, like what, or what were the circumstances? Because I know right. it can be different for, for every man. Right. Yeah, that's right. So I was a, I was a man who after my first, first marriage, I took a couple of years on my own and, or sorry, after my first relationship and then I got, then I got married. So then this is my first wife. And, and basically, um, I, I was one of those ones who, got caught up in a little bit of the myth of marriage, like that thing of like, you know, happy ever after. And, you, you know, I'm going to complete you and you'll complete me and a very codependent kind of style, which was a lot of church-based stuff, like, you know, from that uh, era. And, and so I wasn't really, I, you know, it was that feeling of falling in love, but I don't think I really understood at 25 what love was. I, I was like, I didn't have a deeper because I hadn't done my own full personal work on myself. And so of course I attracted a partner that had some issues with drinking and similar to my father so me being a counselor I ended up in this sort of unhealthy relationship but here was the gift I did know with this woman that I was going to have children I knew that I would be a father and I knew that there would be two children coming through and the two times that my wife and I first wife made love it was on a full moon and I instantly knew it was like a flash went off and I, I could see the trajectory of a child and I even after we made love I said I said to my first wife you know we are having a child and she's like well how do you know that and I'm like no we're having a child that this it came through like I, I I've never felt this in my life so there was this very strong compelling feeling of you know just that fatherhood was in me that it was like it was meant to be it was meant to be part of my calling and I think also because being a family worker to to, to have children and then you know learn it from from the, the grassroots with your own children is really like how am I going to be a good family worker if I haven't actually worked it through with you know and then I got two boys that are close together as well so I got some great tests of high energy boys and and then you know we had children and 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 then the marriage was in trouble when they were toddlers so we moved out to the sunshine coast to see if we could actually you know the the intention was because for me as a a family person the last thing i wanted was was to end a marriage and i I was going to do everything i could to see if it, it could be saved and then we moved out here but the same pattern continued that we i saw in the marriage and it wasn't healthy for the children so we mutually both made a 
a decision that it was best to to just separate and and move on and and that's how it ended up uh you know kind of yeah my early days of coming to fatherhood in terms of what happened there and thank you how does one know particularly with children in the picture you know because sometimes i i get that question too it's like how does one know that you know whatever patterns just can't seem to be solved within the relationship like so how does one how does one make the call yeah. you know i mean i know there might not be a formula mm-hmm. but i'd be curious to know you know having worked with a lot of families and and even how does one even weigh the cost for example of a relationship staying together if there's a lot of conflict for example and they right. say well we got to stay yeah, because of the kids know. yeah you know, and, and, yep. and anyway i'm curious to hear your take yeah so my experience of what i've seen with a lot of families i work with and i do know a lot of families that what i call cohabitating relationships where they stay together and they they do it for the children's sake so what i actually call that is a misalignment of the energies because what happens is when you have and how my research is i've actually talked to a lot of children adult children of of you know parents who stayed together and and they shouldn't have and and all of 100% across the board every child of a of a separated you know family has always said that they would have or, or you know like whether they were separate or not they should not have been stayed together uh, like if they chose to stay together in a cohabitating family so that was one big insight and then if you are going to stay together, you have to be able to continually work on the shadow. You have to work on those parts of the wounds because otherwise what it does is it just, it just basically you're replaying it for your children. So that goes down to the children. So if the, if the relationship is toxic, that feeds into the children and then they repeat the cycle so that there's that negative family cycle that continues to happen. So basically how you would know is if that pattern can't be broken, even when you've got help and even when there's counseling, it's best that the the couple separate and and then you know what i'm seeing is in my practice private practice i'd say about there's about half of the couples that should be staying together and working on it and you know there's and there's you know there's good things there and the other half it's like there's so many differences that it's almost better that they do separate so it's just kind of them defining of uh, you know and I, and I always gauge it on happiness like so if their quality of life and their happiness is really low and you know i call it the 90 90% ratio like so if 90% of your time in your family and your partnership is is miserable then that's a good sign but if it's it, if it's the other way if it's 90% positive and and it's only t- there's always going to be something to work on then then you're you're doing fine right so i i, I guide it for couples that way is uh you want to be happy and everyone wants that and the same as the kids all they're wanting is their parents to get along and not not be fighting and uh, enjoy life so that that's what i would say for sure would be mm. the the key mm. thank you for that mm. what did you learn in those early years of having young kids in this case young boys even you know like what was it yeah. what did, what ideas did you have about how it yeah. would go and then you know how did it go <laughs> yeah that's right yeah i mean I, I well one thing being a father was a, a pure joy for me like i i was the oldest of four boys so uh, my youngest brother was born and i was 15 years old so i was almost got an early introduction to being a father and it's interesting uh, with my brother i remember going into the hospital and holding him like my mom you know ha- 
gave it gave them to me and uh and i and i just felt this overwhelming sense of love and then when my first child was born it was like magnified a hundred times like so it was this feeling of just like you know holding this being and knowing that everything i do everything i say everything i am offering is going into that vessel like this is like this empty vessel of innocence and love and so i can put i can put poison into this kid i can feed this kid junk i can feed this kid healthy food i can put my wounds into this kid so i i knew that that i had a lot of responsibility as a father like here i am i'm 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 gonna be a dad and i am a dad now and i'm i'm now have have this big responsibility and i call it a life contract whether you're you know you're considered a a happy parent or a a miserable parent it is a life contract you're you're in relationship with this child because the two people have come together and created this beautiful life and so for for long haul or not you're you've got this child for life and it was a really great experience overall like i feel both especially when my second one came the joy of just uh going out and being an adventure and you know being in sports with them uh, you know I, I was big into sports so being able to do that and be a coach on their on their teams and go and watch them play and just that you know and then knowing the knowledge of proper rites of passage was another big thing so i think that was one of the key learnings for me i would read michael mead's work uh, back in my 20s and and so i had that knowledge early so i knew how important uh, doing rituals you know every we had so with with them growing up we basically in, incorporated family rituals so friday night was pizza and you know date night with the boys and then sunday night was family fun day where we you know the boys and i would make brunch for jen and and then you know and, and bring it to her in bed and then we go out for a an adventure in the forest and we call it a forest adventure and so i just creating these beautiful family rituals was really a great way of just you know, em, em, embracing fatherhood and, and really enjoying it. And I had one advantage, which I felt was quite, you know, beneficial to me. I was, I was separated, uh, and divorced from my first wife. So we did a week on week off. So what I did as a father, for all you fathers out there as well, who are in that separated marriage, you know, at first it was devastation. I was like, I ever feel I would be a part-time dad. That was heartbreaking for me. But the benefit was when I didn't have them, I put a lot of time into my dharma, into my work ring, and my purpose of doing my work in my profession as a family worker and retreat organizer. And then, and when I did have them, I was full on dad. So that became the primary. So they got my primary attention. So it worked out really well. I just, you know, because I was self-employed, I created a life of, um, being able to be fully present with them when I had them. And then, you know, so, and what I'm finding today is for couples and parents, life is really busy. So to get that undivided time is quite hard. And that's what kids are needing. They need time, a quality time where they can sit with their, their parent and, and be there and, and experience things. And, and often parents are getting so busy uh, today that that gets hard. So that is what was one advantage for me as a, as a father, just mm-hmm. uh, having that opportunity to be with them fully on that time I had them. It feels there's a truism in at least in this culture where at a certain age, generally puberty, that particularly young boys, you know, they go through a transformation, of course, in a lot of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, adolescence comes on, different hormones, all the rest. But oftentimes it can translate into, you know, a disconnection from the parent or from, you know, from the father or a yeah. kind of a sullen, you know, closing off or a kind of risk taking or you know of course all these things that become sort of classic of adolescence around that age or teenagers as i reflect on my own two and a half year old 
son. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I find I, I'm, I'm fairly affectionate with him, you know, physical touch and play. And, and there's a part of me that almost fears the loss of that, right, mm-hmm. when he gets older, because it feels like there's a characterization often where the uh, boys then start to, you know, lean, away, lean out from their parents or, or rebel or, you know, like there's a discomfort there. And I wonder for you, I've been told and mirrored that you do, you've been able to maintain a really beautiful you know, connection with your boys. And mm. so I wonder what, what might, yeah, you know, what was your, <laughs> your approach to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just especially for, for young boys, I would say like physical touch is my understanding was how important it was because often the, the girls are getting much more that, you know, touch much more. There's more, you know, the nurturing that, you know, just in the feminine energy, it's a, it's a nurturing type of energy. And if we look at the archetype of the masculine, we're coming from a lot of history of like violence and abuse and warring. And so a lot of our ancestry in the masculine is, is from this sort of competitive nature of uh, you know what can we what we can we take what can we get so knowing that knowledge and just the things that I've understood and read about being a father it w- I, I saw the importance of always having that physical touch so one was as when they were littler in the toddler stage we did a lot of the the play wrestling and the play forts and and that was a, that was a great stage and that's the stage that you're in right now which uh, I fully fully enjoyed and then as they got into elementary school let's say that phase of from like five to twelve so that period, what I did was we we moved it into it was a lot of learning with like because that's when they uh, my new wife came into the picture she's a massage therapist so we actually taught them about healthy physical touch so we learned and this is a I will share this technique because it was one that I I think is fairly original and I and I and I and the, the families that I've shared it with it really works so my two boys because they were close together would often get into that physical hitting and uh, pushing and shoving and pulling hair my little guy would bite my older my older son and we wanted to find out a healthy way to have them interact with each other. And so the consequence we gave them, I believe a lot on uh, natural consequences. So if they hit each other, their consequence was they had to give their brother or, or their par- one of their parents a 15-minute massage. So the funny story was they, they were like, they wouldn't give each other a massage. So uh, Jen and I would get the massages. And Jen, being a massage therapist, would teach them how to touch a feminine, you know, in a feminine way, in a softer way, and then how to massage you know a father in a, in a fatherly way and so that was one way we we would exchange and that what happened was I got I got to saying like hey you know I need a massage you know why don't you hit your brother and they'd be like I'm not going to hit my brother you know so so it actually worked to stop the negative behavior and then we just developed it like taking it away from the even the consequence and then it became a ritual so it became a re- regular weekend ritual where we would do minute we called it minute for minute so so I you know sit on the floor and then the boys would massage me and then and then we'd switch up and then massage them so we kept that going all the way into their teenage years and which I think is pretty rare because usually when kids get into the teenage years they're really asserting their own independence and they're wanting their own freedoms so to keep that physical contact and affection is not very common so I think I attribute that in their sort of elementary years as being one thing of like regular physical contact and then just continue that so what I see going on with a lot of families is they're they're often just stopping that contact so they'll they'll have contact in the you know pre 
pre-kindergarten but then after that the the contact gets less and less and less so my recommendation is maintain that as much as you can because kids actually are starved for for affection they they do really want that and if we discontinue that from as a parent the kids are missing out and they and they crave it Mm. that's a great tip (laughs) yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna remember that what about too when the boys hit adolescence and often yeah there is this risk-taking, this um, association with peer orientation. I think yeah. Abermatty talks about that. Exactly. Yeah, and how, do, how did you contend with that, you know, that need for freedom and that need for independence? Exactly. But also maintain, I don't know, your own presence as, you mm-hmm. know, like, I mean, a healthy, fatherly, you know, masculine role. Right, yeah. yeah really good question. And, and the neat thing, I've been able to go back and interview my kids as, as adults now, uh, and, and I asked them a question of, like, what was it, like, you know, if you were to assess me as a dad, what what did I do as a father that was working and what did I do that wasn't working? And the big thing that they said was that they really appreciated what in, the, in those sort of tough years from, like, you know, puberty from, like, 12, 13 to 18 in, the, in that sort of five, six-year period was that... I was very inclusive of their friends. So I didn't uh, chastise. I didn't judge their friends. So we had a lot of gaming nights. So we would have their friends come over and I'd be playing, you know, we play Catan together. We play Risk together. We play Monopoly. So another type of ritual. And what they saw was I, I also was connected to their friends too. And I would I was interested in what their friends were doing. So as a teenager, that didn't give them any reason to rebel against me. It, it was actually, they saw their father as like, wow, my father is like, you know, interested in, in my friends too and, and what they're doing. And we go out and play sports together and I'd go out and coach them and I'd coach their basketball team. So staying involved in that, in their milieu of what their, what was important to them as, cause as teenagers, it, what happens and a lot of teachings of this is from Gordon Newfeld and his training is parents become the secondary and, and the, the peers become the primary influence. Now to kind of balance that, that strategy of just staying connected and being interested in what they're doing doing and their lives and not just trying to put our agenda onto them is often a key thing of making the difference of whether you stay in that healthy relationship with your teenager or or do that teenager then because if you become that parent what i call is the uh, over-controlled parent you try to you know control them and 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 ostracize them from certain friends and stop them from doing certain activities and and you know still of course being within safety and reason but giving them as much freedom as you can and still trying to accept their choices and 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 appreciate them and know that they also have wisdom to teach us like sometimes as parents we want to we get fearful of like oh my kids are going to get into drugs or the wrong relationship or you know and we try to control our kids when we actually have to let go of that control that's our journey of letting go of our own you know our own rites of passage of learning letting go of those places where we felt over-controlled maybe in our family. So part of it is just healing our own inner part as a parent and then staying in relationship with your child. Mm-hmm. That's good. Good advice. You know, I'm reflecting on my own parent, my father as well, and certain behaviors that, you know, I found difficult during, especially during that time. And one great idea actually to have the parent or in this case the, you know the father interviewed the kid as an adult and be right. like yeah like huh, so what did i do well and yes that shows a real humility and, and curiosity actually which mm. maybe is is rare but i one thing that i was really had a trouble with was when you know some decision was made and, and my father you know would say no you can't do that you know or like that's not allowed or something like that and i'd say mm-hmm. well what you know and i'd ask him why yeah right but yeah from a sincere kind of like i actually would like to know your reasoning right because for me at least that would help 
you know, maybe contend with it. Yes. But of course, if it landed on my way or the highway kind of attitude, yeah, it yeah. just felt very like a blunt force instrument, you know, of just yeah. like, it's this and that's it. Yep. And so I feel like what I would have longed for actually is a bit more, yeah, transparency about what he was contending with. Yeah, whether it was fear, mm. whether it was other, you know, other reasons beyond simply it's his way because he says totally. so. You yeah. know, like that kind of thing often is a, a disconnecting yeah. uh, uh, tactic, you yeah. know, even as much as they maybe they don't know that's what's happening, but it yes. feels like it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's just sort of applying force yeah. instead of relationship. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. Yeah, what I, you know, if I want to say, acknowledge my own shadow as a father was one thing the kids mentioned that I, that I, you know, the part that I could have done better was I, I had a lot going on. So they did want me to be more present. Uh, even though I did, you know, when I was with them, I was present, but I did have a lot in my life. So, and I, and I recognized that from my father was a, he was a workaholic and I, and I, I recognized those tendencies. So I, I, you know, it was interesting enough when I did talk to them as adults, my, my sons and got that, I was like, oh, and that's when I started slowing my life down a bit. I was like, okay, I, you know, I have, I have, taken on a lot and I've got a lot of energy too right so that was one thing that they said just as a you know as a dad you know at the growing up they wished that I, w- I was not so busy because we often had a lot of retreats here and there was a lot of people and energy and how I circumvented that um, which they were appreciative was what I try to include them so that's another tip for for fathers especially often fathers think that they have to keep their work separate and their kids don't even know what their their fathers do and it's actually the opposite is true the more that the the, the parents, especially the father, if you have a boy as, as well, include them and, and show them what you're doing. So, you know, I would include them with a lot of things. I'd bring them to the alternate school. I would bring them, you know, on different field trips. Uh, my son has actually, you know, taken the nine rings of alignment with a group of men at you know, when he was 19. So I, I love that aspect that he's actually, you know, being, being included in some of the work that I'm bringing forward. And I, I interview him and ask him, you know, hey, on the family ring, you know, I, I'm going to look for you for some tips, right? Because there's a he's a perfect example of you know someone i can get some information from hmm. and what do you say then to this challenge of of let's say you know not wanting to be the disciplinarian or the you know force-based parent yeah. but then also there's the danger almost of being too much of a friend you know and yes. sort of yeah. just too chummy and all of a sudden there's no yep. you know so i'm curious yeah how did you navigate that or where where does the line though for actual like totally. hey that's risky behavior yeah. or or consequence yeah that's right yeah yeah so just in in my my understanding of parenting i i've, I've identified it as there's kind of three styles of parenting the one i mentioned earlier was the parenting over over control parenting which is parents who are very strict and very hardline rules often what i'm seeing with that type of parenting is kids will rebel they'll do things underground there's a lot of secrecy that happens because they don't have to hide what's going on so that's the one style on one spectrum and then you have on the other spectrum what I call this sort of the the parents that are are not really involved they they're, they they let their kids do as whatever they want there's no structure there's no safety there's no boundaries and so these kids are often acting out you know the kids so the kids that you might see that are you know screaming and yelling and there's no consequences they're just like going wild and and the parents are just kind of they tune them out they're, they're oblivious and there's not a lot of rules you, so you go in the house and it's often very chaotic you'll have things everywhere and there'll be messes and 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 that's what I call is like you know just basically uh, a parent that is not 
you know, doing any type of parenting or, or, or discipline or structure. And then what I like is that one at the middle road of someone who brings in, you know, some fair structure, but it's parenting from relationships. So, so what you're doing is everything in your parenting is from agreement. So you're, you're, you're discussing. And, and so it's, it's like you don't have to even do any control because you've already got agreement with the child. So let's use an example of a curfew. So, so, you know, the, the, let's say the 12 year old wants to stay up to 1am and the parent wants the kid at bed at 10. So it's a negotiation. You can negotiate, make an agreement, and then you, you build in a consequence pre consequence before. So if that kid stays up and watches video games, then you have an agreement of what that consequence is. And then that's already just built in. So there is no power and control issues from the parents anymore. So that's a lot of my training is helping parents, you know, either come from one of the, one of the extremes and come to that middle place where, you know, safe family structure, good communication, strong agreements that are done. And it's always done from relationships. So the parent that just, you know, tells a kid what to do, a kid's with they're going to just naturally rebel because that's what their their nature is. They're they're there to say, well, you're just telling me what to do without even looking at me as a sovereign being. I am sovereign. I am a being. I am a I am a soul. And and you're now projecting what you want. So I'm doing a lot of parenting coaching with that to just help parents to see that middle path that there is a middle path, and then you get a much more harmonious environment when when that is because otherwise it can be very chaotic and. Mm. That's so really important. I, I see shades. One of um, you know, you mentioned earlier when uh, a parent, or say a father, doesn't reveal really what their work is, and Bly actually talks about this in Iron John, where he says mm. that the the child receives something like the the temperament and not the content. Right. right? Yes. So the you know the father that. just comes home. He's like stressed totally. out, and the kids just like I don't I don't understand what he did all day, and yet I yeah. just get this stressed out parent yeah you know, this father yeah and the challenge of that and and you know he links it a lot to the industrial revolution actually when mm. you know in the past especially with maybe agrarian work let's say or, or crafting yes that it would have been much more natural to have the child present with you know the 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 beauty making or the you know in the fields yeah whereas in a lot of you know bureaucratic or sort of office labor it maybe feels less understandable to a youth about you know why is my dad sitting in an office all day totally you know, so totally so there's yeah. a real kind of a historical consequence there I think yeah that that's totally right the other piece too which I just want to highlight is this you said a parenting from relationship mm-hmm. which I really like because uh, I interviewed Rianne Eisler who wrote Chalice and the Blade many other books yep. around particularly yep. also in parenting and. And this and that, and and for me, that's actually the differentiation between what she calls a culture of domination, yep, and a culture of partnership, right, right. And so the way I would phrase that slightly too is to say, like parenting with through force, yes, right, or parenting yes. through contact. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, very, which is yeah, very nice. You yes. you really articulated that well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you did too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I'd love to turn now to Nine Rings, which I think we've you know touched on a little bit. Perhaps now we could actually enter into that uh, that, that body of work. And first, to share the story, I understand of of how it came to you in your in your partner mm-hmm. Jen. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, the Nine Rings is now really kind of the the phase of my life that I'm moving into of like now being I think it's 35 years in family and youth work and and I and you know being a father and I I it's it's a time now where I it's like collecting all of the data all of the the dreams and the visions and and all of the the shamanic work and all of the family work and and combining it uh into this one 
uh, practice that, that it really comes down to, but it's also a way of living your life within full relation to all of like the nine rings is all of your relations. So how it began was when I met Jen and got married again, there was a really de- deep sense of love that we were experiencing together. And, and, and uh, basically when that happened, there was, there was a synergy of doing, sharing a journey together, like walking this journey. We had a similar vision of Half Moon Haven being this beautiful space where people could come and, and, you know, heal some of their wounds and have a, a place that they could just uh, relax and kind of reset themselves back to their natural state. Cause often they're coming from places that are quite busy or stressful. So this was a place that was a very, almost like a sanctuary for people to, to really recharge and rejuvenate and when that happened we started taking the courses here so we started there was a lot of shamanic work that we were involved in we had uh, first nations elders and we were sweat lodge uh, doing the sweat lodge for 12 years and i was a firekeeper and learning how to be a firekeeper and jen was learning massage here with the lomi lomi shamans and so we were getting all this wonderful training and as we developed that, we decided to do this journey and we both got the calling. Jen had been down to Mount Shasta and it's been known as a place of high activation of um, energy and portals and things that I don't really even understand. I mean, you know, Jen has a much uh, better depth of, of what that is, Lemurian energy and all this wonderful UFO energy that happens out there. So I go down there like eyes wide open, right? Ready to experience something. And sure enough, we're sitting in a meadow and we're meditating and Jen's got this crystal grid and where the sun is going down and I look up and I there it was almost like it was like um I had I had a recurring dream over 10 years before we went to Shasta and it was basically uh, a dream of seeing nine masculine and nine feminine archetypes and each one was a rites of passage so the so I was in the center and I was seeing these nine beings and I was walking along and I was walking I was getting the transmission of the energy of these beings and then at Shasta it's like these beans appeared again and I'm like, Oh God. And like, and I, I, am I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, doing the rational thing of like, you know, the sun is playing tricks on the forest and, and this is, you know, light and shadow. And, and then, but they are defined beings as coming out of the forest. And there was two childlike beings. So it was like the archetype of the family, the nucleus of the, the, you know, a boy and a girl and a mother and a father. And so I was getting this transmission in terms of what I would call a channeled experience. And I saw this alignment of starting from within. So the, the part of that, we had lost in humanity was we were we were exposing ourselves to too much external information and and then in today's energy with the internet and with technology we're bombarded with so much uh, subliminal messages and exterior noise energy a noise pollution light pollution you know air pollution and so our, our our soul almost like it's almost like it got coated in a way of just with the what i call like sort of a a layer of toxic toxic waste that we we couldn't discover our true intuition our intuition was dulled and our natural senses were all dulled so being in shasta kind of opened that up for me and i i could see this trajectory and it was basically the alignment of the first ring of being self-care self-love like starting with self and then that second ring of that intimate reflection so whether it's a partner or a friend or someone who's an intimate connection to you like that saw that trajectory of the how important that was in the next definition of relationship and then the children ring was the third ring and then the family was the fourth ring fifth ring was the was the fifth ring was the friendship so that the intimate close friendships uh, and I, i'm a little bit emotional because every time i speak 
about this part of it it's almost like it takes you out of your body like it's like it's so beyond uh just the physical that it, sometimes even myself i'm fairly embodied and grounded but i i find that the energy of it is just overwhelming because it's it's such a it was such a powerful experience so then the sixth ring uh, after the after the friendship is the is the um is the dharma ring so our our life purpose and then the community ring so it's it's like an almost a natural expansion so community ring being the seventh the earth mother earth being the eighth and then there's teachings in that and the ninth ring being the universal ring and then after that like so as i'm going through this sort of visionary channeling of information you hit the tenth ring which was almost like it it was in the shape of a a golden spiral and i and i the the other funny story of this when i saw this golden spiral at the end of this nine nine masculine feminine corridor was basically i didn't understand what that was i was like what is this like why am i seeing it but but the signs where it said look for the signs and sure enough jen and i had she had when i first on our first date she had a spiral spiral uh, necklace and then and then i had a spiral tattoo on my arm and jen had a spiral on the back of her neck and then now i'm seeing it in shasta right so things were all kind of clicking it was all these little messages that had come uh, along the way and then I looked up just last week, actually, the golden spiral and it's Fibonacci's. It's the formula for Fibonacci, the, 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 the laws of nature, like the, like that, that spiral is connected to everything in our, in our universe. We see it in the Milky Way. We see it in tornadoes. We see it in a rose. We can see it in a feminine yoni, you know, like the, uh, the spiral energy is, is, is everywhere. So this is, this was sort of like the sort of the epiphany moment of, of the birthing of the nine rings. Mm-hmm. So that that's uh, that's a lot of uh, visionary in a in a in a five minute sort of download, but uh, and uh, you know that that's where it was birthed anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Profound, yeah. Thank you. thank you for sharing that. And then how is it? Then like you came back and you said, "Well, I got to share this." Or like, how did it develop? You know, into into an offering. Yeah. So well, interesting because it was so intense. I came back, had another dream, and I saw a tree of life, and I and so ended up tattooing the tree of life on my on my right masculine side, on my right calf, and and basically I I put in there nine golden leaves, and uh, they were representative of the nine nine rings. And so how how it came about was I started I started dreaming again, and I started getting these diagrams. I got these images that were imprints of the nine rings of alignment so i started drawing those out and then got them templated and then what came through was that the nine rings was actually supposed to be uh, a practice for every individual to have access to at any time at any moment and it was simply a breath connection so just to simply conscious connected breath breathing you know mouth open deep inhale gentle exhale then activating our heart chakra so connecting from breath to heart and then and then setting an intention and and just all you're doing is you're just focusing on each ring and then what the the gift in it is is what it does is there's something that's very magical about it as it because each ring you're just scanning you're just doing a, a simple just like you would do meditation but it's more of your own personal self-guided meditation with the nine rings uh, as your as your as your focal point and what happens is as you go through each ring do the breaths do the heart connection your intuition continues to activate so it is it's basically activating your higher intuition and then it gives you the it, the, the wisdom of what you need to do in that moment so you'll go through it and you'll find that one or two of the rings will kind of 
will, will will pop out. I call them like key rings, and they'll they'll guide you of that that like. So let's use an example of let's say your family ring pops out, and I did mine last night, and my mom came in there. She just came in. I didn't know why. I just opened to that, breathed it, and it just said call call your mom. So I just called her this morning, and then sure enough, there's a whole bunch of information that I needed to know about because she had helped me write. Uh, I wrote a chapter for the Nine Rings of Alignment that is called uh, Fearless Presence. It's going to be co-authored for some other writers and we're going to put it out in June. And so she had some insight on that. So, uh, so that's how it works. It basically will just guide you to, to access your intuition. And then it gives you information on, on, and then, and then usually just, I just take action on that. So that information I just take and I'll just use it. So it was, uh, but if I hadn't taken that time to do that, I would have actually probably missed that. And so I've just created it in terms of uh, my own ritual. I do that the first thing in the morning. So before I get in, to brushing my teeth and getting busy and checking messages i just sit with myself starting with breath you know recognizing my breath you know i can often do it in bed or i'll often go i have a little meditation room that i have and just go there and just take that time and then at nighttime it's a nice way to end my day so the the nighttime ritual is almost just reflecting on the day and then i'm at a place now where i'm just trying to complete each nine rings like you know right now we'd be in the community ring i'd say this would be dharmic community ring and and you can double rings too you can kind of call them where you know like so if i went for a walk with you we could call that like a friendship and a nature ring you know the earth Mm. ring right so we're getting a double ring where we're you know doing two and we're being intentional about it by connecting to nature as well as uh connecting in friendship Mm. uh so it so it gives almost like a nice template or a map for someone to to kind of you know balance out their day so the bigger intent is to actually help people to create more balance to create more harmony in their life especially if they're in a, a stressful job situation so you could be at work and you're you know you're stressed your boss is yelling at you you go to the bathroom you take 10 minutes you do your nine rings and then you're back into that more zen state it really brings more presence so then you go back to your boss and then you're not in that agitated state you actually go back without that wound being activated you're going back now it's like oh, okay yeah i see you're upset you know hey I, how can i support you you know instead of like you're a fucking asshole you know like <laughs> you know, right? so yeah. two ways of approaching it hmm. Hmm. You know, reflecting on the the rings you've outlined, I understand it's like the center is like most important kind of thing. And then they ripple out from there. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a very good question. That's been asked before. Is there a a more importance to one of the rings or, or the other? What I've been told from the sort of the transmission of it is that each one has equal importance and and there's going to be a, a gradation of percentages but the, the the alignment practice was to actually start from self often what i'm seeing like so a lot of people who are they they'll do the nine rings almost in reverse so people let's say i'm working with a lot of women so a lot of women who've had abuse let's say in, incest abuse rape you know sexual abuse as a child they often have to protect themselves they've had to go out of their body often creating different personas or different ways to protect themselves men of course who've been abused same thing uh there's no difference but i've worked with a lot more women with this it just seems to be more women are or have experienced this than men and so so what happens is they'll they'll often be start off in the ninth ring because that's where they feel safe they're 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 in their spiritual practices they're going out of body a lot they're doing a lot of astral traveling so there's nothing wrong with that but what happens is they often aren't very grounded so they so they are wanting to learn about how to be more in that self-love how to be more in 
being grounded embodied in that first ring so uh, often it's just people learning to 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 be more balanced in it so so because so that's acknowledging that yeah their ninth, ninth ring is just as important as the first right but it's it's more of uh being aware of if we start from that first place of presence within ourselves everything seems to flow easier for people and then i've tested it over five years with men and women and then the feedback has been the ones who have been kind of the alignment's been opposite in a way they they've actually enjoyed the practice because they they've actually had to learn to be more embodied and be starting from that place of self hmm. That's helpful. Yeah. Cause I, I also think too, if I look at it and, you know, oftentimes I see there's recognition among men and, and, and myself, I find often I grapple with this, that the, the primacy is Dharma or, right. or purpose, right? This is For the thing sure. where often men have this up front. Well, yeah. you know, purpose is everything yep. and everything else is secondary relationship, secondary, totally, you know? And so I wonder again, is there, is that a trap? Right. Because I, what I'm hearing in what you've put out, right, is actually a very kind yeah. of holistic ecosystem. Right. And I, you know, reflecting even on myself too, right? Where, yeah, yeah where, when is the concentration on purpose, let's say, yep. leaving me yeah. undernourished, right? Or, or where am I not showing up in these other rings? Exactly. If, if so exactly. much is going to that one. Yeah. 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 That's a great question. Like that, what, what I like on that one is what, what happens is, and, and it's true, uh, if we think of men in general, we have been geared to, and I come from a lineage of fathers who, who overwork and who are workaholics. And even in my tendency, you know, my, my messages from my sons was, the feedback was, yeah, if you were not doing so many things, right? And I can see where I, I took that on. So what it does, what the nine rings offers is it gives you a chance to kind of review that Dharma ring and how, so you can look at, okay, wow, I'm, I'm putting 80% of my energy into my Dharma. So it gives you that awareness of like, okay, maybe I need to tone that down to about 60% and then put another 10%. So you can still put most of your work uh, into the Dharma. That's okay. But, but what, it, what the nine rings will do is it'll show you when you're putting too much energy into the work so that's a big bonus of because i've got you know the the work ring is strong probably similar to you ian it's very important my purpose and what i'm doing in the world and and so what it does it slowed me down to kind of, so when i do my morning practice i'd be like oh geez i've you know when i hit my dharma ring and i'm doing that meditation and if i've got too many trajectories it, it actually helps me streamline and go no i need to plug in a time with my sons right now you know i i, I can I, I can afford to do an hour so what it gave me was it gave me that extra insight that i didn't have before because because my override would be to work too much and so basically again it just helped create more balance in my life hmm. i appreciate that too because i i almost you know if i even reflect on times when i'm maybe i can create space you know for other things let's yeah. say that i actually sometimes wonder what to do with myself right mm. where i'll be like well yeah i guess i could meditate or i could go for a run you know which yeah. I, sometimes i do yeah but if i had these like very well articulated other rings right i could say oh actually yeah i haven't really spent any time in yeah you know this ring or actually yeah. whoa that ring i haven't even thought about you know and so totally that that could be a totally. great way to spend an hour or two hours or you know so yeah, yeah it really helps to yeah. conjure possibilities yeah, totally. Yeah, the, there was. Um, I just had a client yesterday on a phone session, and he gave me a really good example of what uh, one thing he was doing. And he has this. He he loves the tree of life one or the 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 rings of the of the tree. And so he has a smaller version of this on his dash. On and mm. one of the patterns that he was doing is he would he would come home and he would just dump on his kids and his wife. So he'd come home and he'd see the house messy, and he'd be like, "Ah, oh, what the fuck are you guys doing? You're messing up the house." And oh, you know, you were home all day. What did you do? You know, so. 
so he would take all of his frustration from his work and so first of all i found out yeah he wasn't happy in his work and then he'd go home and he would just dump on his kids and his wife so he wanted to change that pattern so i introduced uh, the meditation to him so what he did instead so he'd drive and but he would stop at a park now mm. and go and he'd go under a tree he'd do 10 minutes it would only take him 10 minutes he'd do the 10 minutes and all of a sudden he could let all of that information all of that stress go come home and then he'd already have his intention locked in for his children and his partnership ring and then he would in, go that so so then the next thing is he's now you know he, he the first thing he said was it, it was told him to buy flowers for his wife you know so he he got his wife flowers and then he and then he he was to go play soccer with his kids in the backyard so that's what the rings told him right that was his own higher intuition telling them that so now he's ch changed his pattern so now he's gone home done those things and the wife is calling me leaving messages going like what the hell happened like what did you do <laughs> like like what and I, and I said hey he's just he's just practice he's just done his first practice of the nine rings of alignment and you'll notice now all of those patterns will start to change so what it's done for me as a counselor is it's very inspiring because i what would take me maybe 10 sessions in counseling i can get done in about um save about 60 percent. i can do now in three uh, and that's only because uh, bec i have so many clients that i can't take i've got like a caseload of 20 and i've got another 20 on the waiting list so i can't even take anymore so the nine rings was actually a, a gift for me to give to, to family so that i could give them a tool that they could be self-sufficient so that they didn't become so i'm kind of breaking the mold of counseling because a lot of counselors don't like me because i'm i'm you know i'm saying i've got a system that can reduce your counseling sessions in about about 60 percent and and they're going like well but that, I, that's a paycheck for me right mm -hmm. i like I, I you know so there's a lot of sort of what I call codependent counseling where the counselor will just get dependent and then a, a person will come in and they'll continue to rehash their story after story and trauma after trauma and I could take a client like that too and spend years and years and just you know have them as a paycheck but that's not my goal here my goal is to help people be fully sovereign and free and the nine rings was a tool to, to speed up that process yeah well what's your sense too of the i think it's the community ring right and like the family ring because one of the things i often just struggle with is a sense that you know that the, because often families or, or even the the nuclear bubble right can yeah. be so yeah. challenged to sure. yeah to really be you know, and just talking about partnership right or even raising a kid you know there's just so much support that's needed yep. that at oftentimes of course parents that are afraid you know, looking to each other to meet their needs yeah. feels like it's like, you know, the well is empty because we're both trying to tend with a young child. Right. And so oftentimes there's a need to look to the community to support. Yeah. And I've seen healthy versions of that, for example, yes. a place like Tamara in Portugal where, yeah, yeah they really don't let the, the sort of small bubble to hold too much. Mm -hmm. But of course, in this culture where we don't, a lot of people don't have a sort of meaningful, totally. you know, life lived with others yeah. that I wonder, you know, is that why the relationship to sort of trying to keep the family sort of grounded or secure or healthy to then reach the community? Mm. You know, that's mm -hmm. why part I'm still a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know. to, to, yeah. Yeah. In terms of my experience with that too, because I've had a lot of different, you know, being in community as well as having, you know, blended family. And, you know, so what I would say is both are important. Like I, I would say, you know, 
having the family as as the nucleus and and having that element as your foundation and starting point but being fully inclusive like the community ring as as equally in, involved so one thing we did with our boys was making sure that we took that like we went to just dance which was a you know regular thing and it got them involved with that and and got them involved in a lot of causes my mom was involved with a lot of feminist causes so we'd go and do you know feminist march with the boys and we'd go and go you know to to anti anti-racism marches and and sovereignty marches so including them in things that where the community ring primarily its intention is finding a common cause with others that we do together and and so by allowing the children to be in part of that it 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 seemed to bridge it it seemed to bridge that part where and so the other thing is to also having your friends as part of that so i ended up um bringing like just knowing that i can't teach my boys everything there's sometimes they need to so making sure that my boys were playing basketball with my friends and 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 seeing that that example and, and going out and doing canoe trips and camping trips with friends so that 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 becomes like a whole milieu so that they're learning all different aspects so like if you were you know with my boys you they would learn something from you you could teach them something that i could never teach them and and seeing that that it is uh, the community involvement that actually really grows the 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 child in a in a positive way yeah thanks for that i mean you highlight the the real effort it takes i think by parents to cultivate you know authentic relationships with other adults Mm -hmm. you know as in you know i think of my parents too i really i do appreciate so much of how they raised me and you know in a grounded way and they're still together which is very rare you know in this time and and yet they didn't have many friends you know around right right? and it's almost in my mind i'm almost like Oh yeah, that'd be odd actually to even think of times when they had a lot, you know, they had some sort of music friends and, you know, but, but it really wasn't at all the kind of gatherings that Mm. often, you know, our child has been, you know, in more ceremony and more circles by two two than I was at 30. (laughs) Right. Right. And and again, I don't say that to slander my parents, just saying that we're very different, arranged very differently with community. And, and and I got to think that, of course, that, that has an imprint on him. And and I guess I'm just trying to highlight the fact that if there's other parents too, that are kind of like, you know, how do I get other people to teach my kids stuff? Well, one, I think it starts with the humility, like you said, of like, well, there's a bunch of things I just can't teach them. And actually what a blessing. Yeah, that's right. Because it's like, oh, now I have to call on, but it asks a kind of, yeah, a willingness to tend relationships in a meaningful way with others, which often requires authenticity, reciprocity, you know, you show up for them in a a real way too. So I just wanted to highlight that too, because I think that's a really important piece. Yeah. Yeah, that is an important piece. Another piece that we, just as you were speaking to that I, I found was really important for the, for my boys growing up was that they were, that they would get sleepovers. So they would get sleepovers at grandparents. They would get sleepovers at my brother, you know, with their, their uncles, right? And, and, and get to experience like he did a whole other thing. Like he was into like, you know, the fantasy Dungeon and Dragons and adventures. And so things that I, I wasn't into as much and, and they got that element. So, so they got to pick up and I, and I, and now looking back, I can see in my sons, all these new things that I, I I didn't get teach them that they learned from other people, but it was because I was in close proximity. So to other you know other community members, other friends, other family that so it wasn't just in that little bubble. And I I think that is one mistake that parents will make is they'll they will isolate their kids too much, and then the kids you know because what they're wanting to go out and experience the world, and they're getting they're almost feeling a little bit trapped. So then they, they will off that's where you know, I'll, they'll call me, right? And then, because they're getting into a lot of conflict and then I'll I'll actually coach them on that is say like, well, what, what's their what's their social milieu? What What is their social network? Who, who, who are, and, 
and well, no, they don't. Do they see their family? No, do they extend a family? No, they don't. Do they see, you know, your friends? Do you take them out and do things? No, they don't. Do they have causes that they go to in the community? And, and you, you know, do they go to festivals, right? You know, what, what are they? Nope, they don't. So then that tells me they're, they're too isolated. So that's a lot of the behavior stuff. And, and so it's just changing that pattern. As soon as they do that, behavior goes way down and that's in every single case like so so it's almost like a formula if you have that formula that you can share with parents and give them that insight and the community ring in the nine rings of alignment will have those practices it'll have you know like so a parent can take strategies and go through that and go okay yeah this is what what i can do these are the guidelines that i can bring my kids into and and connect them more to community appreciate that and I suspect we could go on for far longer. And as we wind down our conversation for today, mm. I'd love to turn just a little bit to name just how mythic this place is, you know, in terms of, you know, mm. the art you've got around. I see you've got a lot of Autumn Sky, who I'm actually going to be interviewing in the near future. Awesome. Okay. And uh, beautiful artwork. I mean, I saw up front there was the Thunderbird right. as well. And, and yeah. I guess I'm curious just to ask as we leave, you know, the listeners, you know, through your life experience and the different modalities you've, encountered and the you know stories you read you mentioned celestian prophecy earlier of course iron john like what are the guiding myths that you seem to return to now or at least you know a certain gives you a sense of meaning of how to engage in this particular moment right where of course there's a lot of calamity and mayhem and uncertainty out there but is there a a story or some sense of what it means to you yeah, thank you. That yeah, that's a great question. And there's so many, but I, you know, I think, you know, if we're closing now and just ending, there's one that really comes to mind. And it also speaks to, um, I think anyone in their life of going through different chaos or changes or, and that's the story of the mythic of the, of the phoenix, the burning phoenix. And what I see the phoenix representing in an archetype is that we, we all go through these different crises and, and things in our life, but how do, how we handle it? How do we deal with it when we're in that moment of a breakup? We're in the moment we had a fire five years. Our, we lost our whole house. We lost 90% of our possessions. We were basically facing bankruptcy. That was the crux of our phoenix. It was like we were burned down to the core of, of, of where we had to really restart. And at that point, we had two choice points. We could have like, you know, gone into bankruptcy and, you know, separated, divorced. You know, that was one path, you know, and that would have been being overrun by fear. Or do we transmute that energy, take that sort of like crisis? Because at the same time, interesting enough, when that was happening, I also blew out my knee and was out for about a year. And uh, we both got into a serious car accident. So there was an intense time of like about six months where we were faced with a fire, a major accident, and and a a blown out knee, my most severe injury in my life. And then that's when I wrote The Nine Rings. That was when The Nine Rings started to be you know, written. And, and, and it was really a story of that Phoenix. I could f- feel the, the karmic energy of lifetimes that, you know, le- letting go of my father's rooms, letting go of my grandfather's rooms, hearing those stories and facing it. And, and, you know, in this moment, in the present moment and transmuting into that Phoenix rising again to bring that gift, that, that beautiful gift that, you know, I finally was able to see fully and then, you know, be able to bring it into a practice and bring it to the world. And that, that would, you know, in a way, you know, be the one thing that mythically I could say is a powerful experience of just that anyone could apply that, you know, if you're ever in that moment of despair, that there's always that choice point that you can make to, to learn and transmute that energy into that rising Phoenix from the fire, you know, that you can rise from the ashes. Again, we all have that ability in us and in every moment. 
It's a beautiful place to leave us. Yeah. Really mm. grateful for our conversation today and our time. And um, glad to have you on the show, Chris. Yeah, great to be here, Ann. And thank you. Thank you so much for you know the people you're interviewing, the work that you're doing, and mm. the message that you're bringing to the world that's uh, very important. And, and congratulations on being a father you mm. know, and enjoying that. <laughs> Thanks for all the strategy. I'm, <laughs> I'm taking notes. Oh, you bet, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash network to learn more.